Two Pentecosts ago, which is somewhat short of two calendar years ago because Easter was so early this year, I celebrated my first Mass as a priest. The day before that, I had been ordained. It's been the greatest joy and privilege that I can imagine this side of heaven to serve the church as one of her priests. One of the dangers, however, in becoming a priest, I think, is that sometimes we might be tempted to forget the words of St. Paul. I have been crucified with Christ, yet I live. No longer I, but Christ lives in me. Because too often the glory that should be directed at Christ is instead directed at his priests. By that, I don't mean it's wrong to give respect to priests because they are priests. In the fourth commandment, God says, honor thy mother and thy father. This is understood by the church to also include all those who exercise spiritual authority, whether as spiritual fathers or spiritual mothers. Indeed, it even includes those who exercise lawful political authority, recognizing, of course, that there is a difference in the way that this honor is expressed in each of these different contexts. And yet it's not enough to say, as is commonly heard in the political context, I respect the office, but not the person holding the office. Respect for an office or a position of authority, whether in the family, in the church, or in government, cannot be totally separated from the person who is holding such office or position. That doesn't mean that we are blind to their faults and failings of those who we are bound to respect and honor but we are bound to truly pray for them and for their spiritual and temporal well-being, not simply for their abstract position. That said, one of the things that priests commonly experience is that people will direct the thanksgiving for the spiritual goods of the church, particularly the sacraments, to the priest administering, administering them, rather than to God. This is especially common when visiting the sick and elderly in hospitals or nursing homes. Very often I found that after administering anointing of the sick or last rites, the sick or dying person or sometimes their family will be just so effusive in their praise of me as though I did something for them of my own accord, like I invented the ritual of the sacrament just for them. I don't say it right then, but I would love to tell them, you know, see this little book that I have? Everything I said or did comes from Holy Mother Church. Any validly ordained priest could have done exactly the same thing. For good reason, the church doesn't give priests a lot of latitude in the way that they administer the sacraments. It isn't an opportunity for our personality or our creativity to show through. Sometimes the tendency to exalt the human action of the priest rather than to recognize the divine action of God acting through the priest, not because of him, results from a certain degree of unfamiliarity with the faith. Many times that the people who priests are called to minister to in these crisis situations were not up to then practicing their faith. Oftentimes they have some sense that something transformational and grace-filled has taken place, but they only know how to express their thanksgiving as a matter of human gratitude. So they shower the priest with accolades. But other times it happens that even people who are more regular in the practice of their faith do these things as well. 
because especially in an emotional situation, our natural human tendency is not to search for what's or even for why's, but rather for whose. We need our loving and merciful God, not an abstraction. And so in instituting the priesthood, Jesus was recognizing that his church and the sacraments would need to be carried forth by men who could act in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. It's necessary and good that a person facing shock and grief and loss in their lives has that priest as the object of their thanksgiving for God's grace, so long as the priest himself recalls, no longer I, but Christ. As we look back upon salvation history throughout the Bible, we see that it was always the personal nature of God that was being progressively revealed. Now, it was not necessarily a perfectly linear process, because sometimes the personal relationship of God to Israel was obscured by sin or legalism and had to be re-revealed. But it was always the case that the law of God, his word as contained in scriptures, was not by itself sufficient. The old law was never enough to sustain Israel's relationship to God on their part. Rather, it took the revelation and incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, God's Son, for the relationship between God and Israel, and eventually all the people of the world, to be established on a truly loving and personal basis. Because of Christ, love could now replace rote obedience to the law. Sacrament could replace temple sacrifice. And the church universal could replace the nation of Israel. Of course, Jesus ascended to the Father, as we celebrated last week. He isn't present among us in the same way that he was present in and around Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. But he didn't just leave us with doctrines and teachings and the wise sayings contained in scriptures. Rather, he left behind for us not just signs, but rather personifications of himself. Through his apostles, he gave us the church, manifested most visibly in the persons of his sacred ministers, who administer the sacraments and preach and teach in his name. But he also gave us the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, because Christ knew that even the new law would be impossible for us to keep on our own. Jesus thus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another an advocate to be with you always. The Holy Spirit is the impetus for the church that Christ has set in motion. It's the personal intervention of the Holy Spirit that kept and keeps the church on the right track, or at least on the right side of the road. The Holy Spirit calls the church back to Christ when she strays. Thus, Jesus tells us, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I told you. To accomplish his mission, the Holy Spirit distributes gifts to believers. Now, one of the dangers is that when we talk of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, many people think of things that are more properly called charismatic gifts. Things like prophecy and preaching, speaking in tongues, healing the sick, casting out demons, or being able to evangelize and convert others. Now, the Holy Spirit certainly does bestow such charisms on some of the church's followers. These charisms exist, of course, for the sake of the church, 
But charisms, whether real or supposed, are a kind of fire. That's why the church always insists that she and she alone is the authentic guarantor of the authenticity of a charism. Because a false charism, which is essentially just a human talent divorced from holiness, leads to all manner of bad consequences, cults of personality, misguided piety, and sometimes just outright fraud. Rather, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit are simple. They are these. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. These aren't sexy, showy kinds of things. Rather, they are ordinary, humble virtues, but simply amplified by divine grace. Nor do they necessarily even lead to anything outwardly dramatic. Rather, the church teaches that these gifts, if we continue to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, will bear fruit. These fruits are 12 simple things. Charity, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, gentleness, faithfulness, modesty, self-control, and chastity. Again, traits that the world would call boring or old-fashioned, but ones that are the mark of a true Christian. This is true even of the saints who worked great wonders in their lifetimes. If you looked under the hood, you would see that their holiness was built upon these seven gifts and the twelve fruits from the Holy Spirit. True holiness is the stake, not the sizzle. As Jesus reminds us in the Gospel of Matthew, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty deeds in your name? Then I will declare to them solemnly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you accursed sinner. All of us who are baptized and confirmed have received the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, at least in embryonic form. It is up to us to nurture them because they will be our true ticket into heaven. They are the bedrocks of faith and hope and the foundation of love, which is the currency of God's kingdom. Too many seek after flashy charisms, either in themselves or in others. But as St. Paul reminds us, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it too will pass away. So faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these things is love. As we celebrate Pentecost, please pray for your priests. Pray that we don't believe the headlines and the accolades that we are sometimes given. Pray that we might instead have wisdom, understanding, and counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. Ask these same things for yourselves and for all of your brother and sister Christians. And ask the Holy Spirit into your heart. Invite him into your household. Ask him to be especially present in this parish community, not bearing miracles or prophecies or even a newly designed front entrance for the church, though that would be nice. Rather, pray that the Holy Spirit will bear his fruit here. Charity, joy, patience, peace, kindness, goodness, generosity, gentleness, faithfulness, modesty, self-control, and chastity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.